most instances point to Jesus Christ. And we will, at the last day of our being in this text, we will look at that and we'll look at the prophetic way in which this psalm can be understood in light of the gospel. But there is also a practical sense in which these psalms were written, that David, unbeknownst to him, was penning this song as a, a way of pointing to Christ, for David himself is a type of Christ, just like Moses is a type of Christ, and Joseph is a type of Christ, and, so, and Adam is a type of Christ. But David was not very aware of that reality. And that's the beauty of what God can do through the mouths and the lives of his people. There are things that we experience in this life that Christ is, is exemplified and honored and glorified in our experiences, in our expressions, in our worship. As Paul would teach us, the transformation of the gospel in our lives to produce praise and honor and glory. I was reading this morning of a young man who was seeking some counsel through a, a group that I'm a part of, and he was overcome with remorse for the sin that he continued to do. And some of the applications that he was given were so practical and so prudent, yet they were powerless. But what you got to do, see, is you got to get that sin, you got to put it in the box. But what you got to do, see, is you got to get that, you got to get that troubling temptation, you got to separate yourself from it. Well, what you got to do, see, is you got to put a rubber band on your wrist, and every time you think about it, you got to pop yourself. Well, what you got to do, see, is avoid anybody who would even remotely bring you to that temptation. And so I can understand what this young man was thinking. I'm going to put myself in a box, and I'm going to ship myself on the next rocket out of space, and I'm going to stay there forever. The Bible gives us different prescriptions. So the Bible gives us a prescription, even in the Psalms. How did David deal with his sin? How did David deal with his faith? How did David express himself in the context of his relationship with the Lord and with other people? But our application is not necessarily that we do what David did. And that's where we get into problems. We don't need to dance like David did or fight like David did or stand firm like David did. That's not the point of the narrative. The point of the narrative is to see what God has done in the life of the people who were powerless to affect any change in their own lives, and even with the greatest of knowledge, the greatest of wisdom, the greatest of wealth, the greatest of power, the greatest of righteousness imputed to them, and the greatest of heart of worship, these people still could not and will never, ever stand before God in a state of righteousness, except that Jesus Christ himself has credited them with his own. So the application of how we mortify sin and put it to death is that we don't think about it. We don't labor over it. We don't fight against it. This is the dumbest thing in the world. You don't keep a dead thing to bring it, to keep it dead. You let it die. And cultural Christianity, the evangelical cults of our world, the, 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 the oppressive, even antinomianism of just another law that you have to keep of not doing, all this stuff is just incredibly, ridiculously impossible to bring us to the place of joy because the only joy that we can have, the only identity that we can hold to with any power is that we are indeed the people of God by grace alone. When we attempt to fill our lives with anything else, I want to fix this, I want to fix that, I want to be this, I want to be that, I want to do better, I want to do worse, whatever, I'm worried. We will fill ourselves with a level of anxiety that our bodies cannot stand. And for some people in their temperament, 
it's even worse. So in this psalm, as we've seen already, there is some incredible practical, praising, awesome, prescriptive things that David did and understood. We are to embrace the experience and then we are to see Christ. Because that's what David did. He saw Christ. We made it through the first half of this thing twice. We've talked about actually up through verse 8. But let's read. Let's read the psalm again. The whole thing. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is written within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and I am needy. But the Lord takes thought of me for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh <coughs> my God. Beautiful. How many times have you read this psalm in the last three weeks? I don't know how many times I've read this psalm in the last three weeks. And I'm always inclined every week. I'm thinking I'm just going to start over. Because that is the typical preparation for preaching. You're in the text so much, it is devouring you and, and your flesh, and it's absorbing all of the self-reliance and self-sufficiency, and then it's applying the, the gospel in such a way that is a supernatural thing that goes on in the life of the reader of Scripture. And then when you sit down and you begin to express your journey with the Lord and His Word to the people, there's always some space in there. It's like, yeah, this is where I've been. Let me show you where we're going. But for when this psalm came to me, it was medicine for my soul at the moment, you see. So my labor is now. It's unfolding as we go week to week in this. And it's the only thing that I could do and the only thing that I can do is that the Word of God do its work. So the Lord's Word will be repetitive and redundant, but it will never be ridiculous 
and it will always be rewarding for God's people. We see that David has praised the Lord for what he has done. That this personal testimony of David, and of course, we're going to look at the testimony of Christ. I promise you the Christological reality of this psalm is going to unfold for us once we get through just absorbing it for a little bit. We see that David understood the reality of God as his defender, as his savior, as his strength. We also see that David understood that God's providence, and he pondered that providence in the present moment of his harm and and, and pain and suffering and fear. And then he realized that the things that he was experiencing were best told so that the people around him could also participate in this providence could participate in the proclamation of what God has done for him. And when you think about verse 4 and 5, think about verse 4 and 5 for a second. And we talked about this a little bit last week, and I want to get into it in a couple of weeks. But right now, I want you to see, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. And we understand that in the context of self-reliance. We also understand that as we see Hebrews 10 unfold in the next few verses... We see there's some changing there that's taking place in what Paul wrote of Christ and what David wrote of Christ. But the sense and the theology is identical. See, Jesus himself did not entrust himself to himself. Jesus entrusted himself to the one who was faithful. I've had that question recently. Is it why should we believe that the cultural Christianity that we see today in our world is true when every practice of the so-called church is completely opposite of what Jesus even did. That Jesus talked about not giving him praise, but praising the Father. That Jesus made less of himself, but made much of the Father. I mean, it's a fair question for the person who reads the Bible for the first few times. Especially an unconverted person. And I like the question. The question stands... As, an, as, as a truly necessary observation of the world versus what the Bible teaches. And Jesus made much of the Father because Jesus and his humanity must depend upon the Father. He laid his life down for his people. And without the Father's promises, Jesus was powerless to persevere through it. Think about that for a second. But think about verse 5 for a minute. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I mean, think for just a minute from the very beginning of the narrative of the Old Testament. From the very reality of the expression of the poetry of Genesis chapters 1 through 4. And yes, it is poetry. The creation account is poetry. That's the genre. If you want to see some precursory thoughts on Genesis, it's on our church website. But think about it for a second. Here is nothing, nothing, and then something, and then out of something, chaos, and out of chaos, order, and out of order, life. And when life left to itself, it dies again. And then the Creator comes in and creates life out of death by becoming life and then dying for those that he intends to save. <laughs> I mean, think about it for a second. It's just, hmm. It's beautiful stuff. 
So from the very beginning of existence, this world has been observing and seeing the wondrous deeds of the Lord. See, we often miss the boat of awe when we ride the little ferry rides down the the creek of uh, simplicity in the sense of niceties. Let me give you an example of what I'm saying. We sometimes teach ourselves and our children, you know, the Lord is, is powerful. Look at the birds. Ain't the birds cute? Look at that bird. The Lord is strong and does all many good things. Look at that rain. Isn't that rain awesome? It feeds us and waters our soil and fills up our lakes. These are true things, but see how superficial that is? Yes, those are the deeds of the Lord. The psalmist even says the, the, the world, the cosmos, declares the work of your hands. But it's bigger than that. Because what happens when the birds get together and turn on us? Look at God's birds! And Alfred Hitchcock comes together. Ah, the birds! I mean, you know, we, we, we just don't, we don't know what to do with this. Oh, well, you know, it's our fault. Or the rain that's blessing us this week and killing us tomorrow. Dozens of people are dead this morning because of the weather and the rain in Mississippi and Tennessee. How do we maintain the solidarity of our theology without understanding the gospel. We don't. Think a little bit more. What is it that God's deeds are? What is it that God is speaking of through his prophet David here? Yes, of course, the creation of all things. Yes, of course, the promise of Messiah. Yes, of course, the providence of all things. You know, providence is linked intricately with sovereignty, right? Don't be afraid to talk about the providence of God. It's about His rule, authority, and power over everything. Including death by rain. Or birds. Or pterodactyls. Or whatever else horrible thing could come up and get you. Spiders. Sorry, this made half of you guys go, oh. What about what he did for his people? What about how he killed an animal to cover the guilt and shame of Adam and Eve? What about how he took them out of the presence of his temple, out of the presence of his glory, out of the presence of his person, so that he could show that he alone through mercy could establish with them a covenant? And story after story after story, genealogy after genealogy after genealogy. I mean, how is it that Rahab fits into the narrative of Christ? Why is it that Paul praises the Lord for the women in his churches doing the work of the gospel? Yet nothing culturally has changed from that. Why is it that that we can see in the Bible that God has done wondrous things? He's, He's been forgiving. He went into Egypt 
through his prophet Moses, who he made a murderer. Wouldn't it have been much more effective if Moses had been like a Joseph, the co-regent? But no, Moses lived a good life, then became a murderer, then became an outsider, then became the messenger. Joseph was the arrogant little brother, sold into slavery, lived a life of hell on earth, then became the regent. Why? So that God could show his wondrous deeds. These are the wondrous deeds. What do they mean? They mean that Jesus Christ is the preeminent sufficient hope of his people. Because Joseph died. Another famine took most of those people. They're all gone. Moses didn't even get to enter the promised land. Most of the Israelites perished. But Christ is alive. The wondrous deeds. And not just the wondrous deeds. The wondrous deeds, listen to this, God has revealed himself in his deeds, in his power, for the sake of his people, praising him for his glorious grace. Everything God has ever done, recorded in the Bible, and not recorded in the Bible, you understand that God has done so much more with so many more people that could ever be written down. And that God has spoken prophetically through His Word, through the mouths of other men and women and children. Not new revelation, but continually revealing Himself through what is written down by the prophets and the apostles. And He's continuing to do the work. That's what Jesus said, and what Jesus meant when He said that greater things than these you will do to His disciples. Now, what would you think of the guy who came to town and said, I'm going to do greater things than Jesus did? Uh, <laughs> I'm standing over here. Lightning bolts. I mean, that's what you would, you'd be like, this is blasphemous. But that's not the point in that I'm greater than Jesus. But as God continues to work in his providential sovereignty, his promises, his grace toward his people, he works out and affects His purposes in every minute detail. These are amazing works. All the works of God revealed to us have one thing as its focus. And it's twofold. You ready? To show Himself and all His glory and power for the sake of His people. Whom he loves with an everlasting love. So you can bust into the throne of heaven and say, Hey, Dad! And all the angels have to shut their mouths so that your daddy can talk to you. And you can talk to him. You see that picture? This, is the, this isn't theological concrete. This is imagery. Just as Jesus spoke to the Father, we, through Him, speak to the Father. Beloved, that helps your fear, if nothing else. These wondrous works. What have we experienced in this life that God has not wonderfully worked through? Nothing. 
Even if we don't see it, it doesn't mean that it's not true. And we can disagree on these things, and we don't have to have people believe us. Our joy is not tethered to whether someone agrees with it. Nobody agreed with David. They blamed David. David, and they were right. You are destroying the whole nation. Too late. You destroyed the whole nation. To be so brave, to stand up to so many things. David was a coward in so many ways. Christ is not a coward. And he stood and he did not turn to the proud. He did not become self-reliant. He stood in the hands of the Father who judges all things rightly. And he gave himself as a ransom for his people. You see, that's where we were last week in Hebrews 10. We see it over and over and over and over. Beloved, we don't have to become experts in all of Scripture. I am of the opinion, and you don't have to agree with me, and I can sleep tonight if you don't. But I'm of the opinion, not only from the context of what the Bible teaches me, but also the decades of experience with God, according to the Bible, that He will use any of it, any small part, any large part, and all of it, anytime he wishes, in any way that he wishes, work with anyone he wishes to bring about their joy, to bring about their salvation. When I don't feel like stomping grapes, I'm going to get back into, and I'm taking that from a metaphorical sense of like the wrath of God, but when I, and I'm not making wine to be glad, but when I don't feel like stomping grapes, we get back into Timothy's writing, uh, the writing to Timothy. You know, we'll see that Paul establishes that in the second letter. He's like, you know what? We all know the 316, right? All scriptures breathed out by God and useful, the man of God. But he tells Timothy something. He says that the scriptures, the holy scriptures, are enough for your salvation. He was talking about the Psalms. It's enough. He was talking about 1st and 2nd Samuel. Really? If God cannot show us Christ in every portion of Scripture, Scripture, then we're doomed. If God cannot do what we cannot do, then we're in trouble. You see how much more powerful verses 4 and 5 are? And boy, does Christ proclaim and tell of the good works of God. That's why we call it gospel, God speak. That's where the word comes from. It means good story. What is a story? Something we tell about something that happened. And all stories have characters and events and plot. And an apex or a climax and a resolve and continuation and a cliffhanger. There's a cliffhanger. Spoiler alert, we're still living it. The story of Christ is still true, living, breathing. But you know what we do in our ignorance as powerful, awesome, intelligent, creative, academic human beings? 
Oh, no, 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 that's not the gospel. The gospel is the treatise of theological fortitude on these finer points. Church history has ruined Bible reading for many of us. They're two distinct things. God's practical principles for personal practice in verses 6 through 8, as we talked about already last week. We showed, we saw where this scripture, of course, is talking of Christ and alluded in Paul's writing to the Hebrews chapter 10 as Christ, and he even says, a body you have prepared for me. The outcome of God's power and the resolve of David was to look to the greater David. I mean to the greater Christ, David as, yeah, the greater David, Jesus Christ. (laughs) The greater bridegroom, Jesus Christ. The greater Adam, Jesus Christ. The greater Moses, Jesus Christ. And Hebrews really does all that. I, I feel like I need to teach that text again. I'm yours, my body is yours, my life is yours. How many times have we sung that? In our lifetimes. How many Christian songs have been written over the last thousand years that have something? You know, I am yours. Have my all. I give my life. It's as foolish as the love songs of antiquity. I'll swim the ocean. No, you won't. You won't get in the swimming pool. I'll climb the highest mountain. No, you won't. You won't even wash the dishes. You see? I'll set myself on fire. Yeah, not going to happen. It's just hyperbole. But in the moment, it's what we feel. In the moment, it's what we think. In the moment, it's what we'll do. And for the Christian, the life of, I'm yours, I trust you, is like, I don't know, a sputtering engine. Running good and... Running good and then backfiring. Running good and running out of gas. Running well, oh my... Engine locked up. That's what we do. Look at the life of the people in the Bible. But you know who didn't do that was Christ. His perfect humanity. He stayed and stood and never, ever, ever lied to God. Not your will, but my, not my will, but yours be done. I lay down my life for the sheep. Think about those things. Husbands, lay down your wives for your wife. Absolutely. I don't like this. I don't want this way. I'm not laying down now. You see? Don't exacerbate your children. Don't lead them to anger. Well, I'm the daddy around here. I mean, no, you're not. God's the true father. Christ is a true parent. We're just a, a brick calm that we don't know is happening. And everybody's not laughing at the not funny dry jokes. And when we look back at it, we chuckle and we think, praise God for his grace. And the public proclamation 
verses 9 and 10, I've told of the glad deliverance in the great congregation. I've not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. We talked about this as well. This is David expressing why do we go through the things we go through? Because it's God's purposes. And when we whine and complain about the conditions and the circumstances, we are not praising and being thankful for God's power in them. And that's okay. See, the, the application here is not stop whining. That'd be like me telling you not to breathe again. Now, some of us are disciplined. I'm not one. But some of us are disciplined to the point where there's never a complaint. Matter of fact, we don't say much at all. We don't even show the complaint in our face. Matter of fact, we look like this. Things are great. But that means, ah! So what we're saying on the inside, and we're lying to ourselves to think we're solid as a rock. All the comedic things that use that reference just pop into my head. I'm so sorry. Give me a, give me a moment. Okay. So we praise the Lord. We praise what He is and who He is and what He's done and the fact that He's given His Son. We praise God for His glorious grace. So here's what we need to learn in that everything that we experience, spiritual or not spiritual, political, uh, financial, relational, medical, mental, emotional, everything is part of God's great purpose. For us to look to and cling to Christ. And so we see all of these things and we know that Christ is, but for some real reason, it's very difficult for us to hold fast. Verse 11. When we get through the end of verse 10, we see this proclamation, we see this praising. When we get to verse 11, we begin to see that God's promises, as David has been waiting and, 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 and patiently waiting, we see Psalm 37, 38, 39, on deliverance, and, the, and then him looking inward. And we begin to see that God's promises include power over sin. We understand God's faithfulness, yet we still try to make our faith or our faithfulness the barometer by which we stand firm. Let me say that again. We understand and we praise God for His faithfulness, but oftentimes we try to use our faith and our faithfulness as the barometer of how we stand firm or that we are standing firm. Now think about this from a gospel perspective, from redemption. God's Word teaches us that God snatches us out of the domain of darkness. There's no coaxing there. Okay? It's not like, hey, it's dark down there. See the light? Here's the light. Come to the light. Come on. Oh, don't go that way, though, this way. I know, I'll put a ladder down there. They'll climb out. Sure, I'll put food down. That's not how God works. It, it, it tells us that God draws all whom have been given to the Son in John's Gospel. And that drawing is not a coaxing. It's a forceful 
snatching. Snatching. Here we are on our merry way and our self-righteousness and our religious activities and our whatever it may be, and we're walking around and we're thinking, I'm not worthy, I'm not faithful. True, 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 but we are worthy and He is faithful because He has declared us worthy and He's faithful to save us. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves into the domain of light. Wait a minute, I can see. I was blind. Amazing grace. Look at all the songs that establish that. Look at all the heretics who sing about that through the ages. Now I can see your faithfulness. Let me live that I may tell of your faithfulness. Do you know that psychologically gratitude is probably one of the most healing disciplines in life? Reframing every circumstance to try to find not naivety, not hyper-optimism, but gratitude. You know what? I'm thankful for what I do have. I'm thankful for the people in my life. I'm thankful. I'm thankful. And if that's true for science and the way God created our bodies, is it not even truer with greater benefit? Just like Paul would say to Timothy, you know, physical fitness is of some value. Pay attention to your bodies. But spiritual fitness is of great value, of all value. So the same thing is true with how we exercise our thoughts. How we exercise our focus. How we exercise our emotions. Well, but these are highly practical but incredibly spiritual things. The faithfulness of God has nothing to do with whether or not we maintain our sense of focus and faith. And if we find ourselves tomorrow naked in the grass eating like a cow, you know that story, right? Nebuchadnezzar. There's nothing we can do about it. There's nobody who can come along and help us. Matter of fact, when they do, they're typically like the friends of Job. Well, we knew you eat too much hamburger. And that's our only answer. That's our faithfulness. Moo. We moo back to God. Moo. And he's like, okay. Now, there's a context there. I'm just using it as an example. If we find ourselves there, God is still faithful. God is still faithful. Why did Lazarus die? For the wages of sin is death. He caught COVID. Whatever disease it was back then. Either way, he died. That's so sad. It's very sad. It was so sad that Mary and Martha lost their faith. They had faith. They're like, you know what, Jesus? Had you been here, we called for you. We sent the camelgram and everything, and you did not come. Had you just shown up, Jesus, he would be alive. And Jesus says, it is not for death. It is not for any other reason except that the Son of Man be glorified in his death. Do you know that's such a powerful precursor to the cross? It's such a powerful thing that higher critics of the New Testament academically don't get into academia. 
We've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and if not thousands of hours of discussions about these things in academia where people don't think that's a valid narrative. Because it's so absurd. It is. It's the work of the Lord. And everybody during that time would look at Nick, I mean, look, look at Lazarus and, and all the people there that loved him were like, praise the Lord, Lazarus is alive. Oh, this is great. That's not the point of the celebration. The point of the celebration is that Jesus is the life bringer. He's the light of the life of men. He's the God come down from heaven in human form. He will lay down his life and he will take it up again. And in all of that work, he didn't stand at the precipice of the cliffs of Jerusalem and say, Hear ye, hear ye, take out your pen ye. And write it down, ye. And then list all of these deep theological things for all these people to contemplate, to absorb, to digest, and then to regurgitate. He stood at the corner of the temple and he said, Look at me, the living water, the bread that gives eternal life. I am the bread that comes down from heaven. You're a carpenter from an illegitimate relationship. Don't tell me you come from heaven. Oh, may God grant our culture and our church eyes. It is not about our faithfulness. God is faithful. How do we know? Verse 11 and verse 12. It's a long introduction to get to two verses, isn't it? As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Now, I've just taught that, you know. Now I've read it. I don't have to give you the thousands of places or the thousands of instances in your own life where that's been true. I don't have to remind you of all the places that I've even already talked about in Scripture. The garden, the fall, Cain and Abel, all of that trouble. Babel, the flood, Moses, everything else, Abram. I mean, just, where is it? God is faithful. And every single person that he uses in this world to bring about his purposes are faithless. Because he is merciful. That's who he is. That's what he does. That is what God has revealed of himself. You will not restrain your mercy from me. O Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Your mercies are new. My heart and my desire is for us to see this mercy. 
flowing from the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God who preserves his people. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails me. See, this is where when we talk about this as a, as, as a prophetic psalm of Christ, we, we lose sight here. But we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Jesus had iniquities placed upon him. But in this sense, David was crying out about his own. Isn't that funny? He, he, he often talks about those who come against him. We often talk about how others come against us. You know, every tyrant, every maniacal dictator, every murderer, every killer, every abuser is loved by somebody. Never thought about that? I mean, just go through the horrible things of history. Every one of those persons, mostly men, <laughs> was someone's little boy. Some grandma loved that child. And what you been doing today, Daddy? Murdering thousands. I love you. You want to play ball? Sure. <laughs> Dad has such a hard job. Those people won't stand still. It's sad and ridiculous to us. But David, he has enemies and they are doing evil against him. But he never loses sight of what? Who he is. Remember what I talked about? Verse 17 is really the point. I am poor and I am needy. So what are we to do? Are we to resolve to overcome these things? Are we to resolve to have a faith and a righteousness of our own? No. We stand in the sufficiency of the mercy of God who leans toward us, who thinks of us, who bends down to us, who condescends to us. How does that happen? Well, we see it figuratively in the expressions of Scripture. We see it spiritually in the fact that the Spirit of God prays for us. We see it purposefully in the providence of God and His sovereignty to create the world and everything in it and do the things that He's promised to do. But we see it personally in the person of Jesus Christ. God came down from heaven to save us. I don't remember who said this lyric, but it's interesting to say the least. It sort of expresses some song from years ago, a hip-hop song, that, that, that the hero dies for the villain. I read Romans 5 at the beginning of our service. God showed his love for us in this while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And if God would do that while we were enemies, how much more now that we've been reconciled as friends, as brothers, as children, will we live because Christ lives? It's so easy. It's so easy to become faithless. And see, here, here is the fork in the road for the Christian when it comes to trial and we feel and know that we're faithless, we create a faithfulness in our own right, and we run after it with great zeal, and it's often wicked. And what does it look like? Let me give you some ideas. These just sort of popped into my head. I think it's worth talking about. Well, I know I'm not trusting the Lord. I know I'm not at peace. I know I'm not seeking the face of Christ. I know I'm not resting in His faithfulness. i got to be faithful. I'm going to go after everything that's wrong in the church. I'm going to stand for truth against evil. And yes, I'm mocking that because it's sad. 
Because if I contemplate that junk too much, I will lose composure. I will show the sinful things of the world. I'll teach this world. I'll be a voice. You know what? Be a voice crying out about Christ and be a voice that cries with the voice of Christ. Who has love and compassion for the lowly, for the fatherless, for the poor, for the sick, for the marginalized, for the disenfranchised. Be faithful in loving your neighbor. Be faithful in loving your enemy. That's what Christ did, see. And I disavow anyone as my friend who would ever say, you don't apply that type of instruction to the church. Blasphemous demons. And see, that dogma makes my blood curl. To say that out of my mouth makes me hurt. But beloved, I want to show you right now that there is instruction for our joy in the Bible. <laughs> it's the therefore. It has nothing to do with our salvation. It has nothing to do with us being right before God. It has nothing to do. It has everything to do with giving God glory for who He is and what He's done as He bent His ear toward us, needy and lonely and poor and in need of great help. So if we want to find any type of zeal, find zeal for having compassion for other people who are not like us. Why is that novel? <laughs> I don't understand it. Beloved, when we stand, I was thinking about this this week, when we stand patiently and kindly and gently on our convictions on these things, what the gospel is, how we are to learn it, the patience required to continue to grow one another in it, and then the application thereof of living a life of grace. You know, this assembly is not about us just coming in here and learning theological things and prophecies. It's about us learning theological things and prophecies. And then the instruction, the application of that instruction as we leave this assembly to spend 99% of our time in the world out there with each other and with others. And I find it very off-putting for people who have all the answers in the Bible and all the answers in the theology and all the answers in their church understanding, but yet they don't have any relationships with unbelievers whatsoever and they haven't shared the Bible in any simple sense with anybody ever in 15 years. And they want to argue the gospel? Please. Please. We're not doing that. You don't have to do that, beloved. It's not required of you. You just rest in the sufficiency of Christ who saved you because he loved you. And you are free. Our iniquities, our enemies are going to be more than the hairs of our head. But Christ has set them down. He has erased them. He has taken over them. He is the victor. He is the king. He has done away with their power against us that even if, as he says the Corinthians, the 2 Corinthians, even if we die, what does he say? Yet we live, right? I mean, think about that. 
David wrote Psalm 40. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's a long ways away when you're turning it. Think about that for a second. Paul wrote that. David wrote this. I think the sentiment is the same, except for one huge difference. Paul knew to whom he was pointing. Specifically. David knew he was pointing to the faithfulness of the Father. Christ is the faithfulness of God for his people. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We do not practice cunning. We refuse it. We also refuse to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we don't chop it up and create arguments with it. To coax people into seeing our points of view. We, we just proclaim it. And when Paul wrote this, he was talking about Psalm 40. Psalm 1. Deuteronomy 3. Zechariah, Amos, and all the other things written for our benefit. But the open statement of the truth, we show that the resurrection of Christ is the fulfillment of all the prophets. Everything written in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. And we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We're doing what is right in the sight of God. You bear witness to it. And if our gospel is veiled, people can't see it. It is only veiled to those who are perishing in their case. I'm going to paraphrase here my interpretation of this text by implication. It's going to sound odd to some of you. In their case, God our Father, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, for what we proclaim is not of ourselves. You see that? It's not, it's not about what we've come to conclude in our studies. It's not about what God has given us and our cognitive understanding of things. It's not about all the years in. I mean, when you start looking around the world, you start doing some connections in these small, by the fact, by the fact evangelical connections and church connections and sovereign grace connections and gospel connections around the world are very small. Very small. And in all the connections that I have in all of my several decades of ministry, I can promise you this, that it's in the thousands. The thousands of people. I think I've got 6,000 people in my contact list on my Google contacts. People that I know. I know them. Not my Facebook page. I'm talking about people that I've known and talked to. All right? whoop de doo but out of all of those, I only know a handful who have really spent their lives in the Johannine epistles, Johannine literature, John's writing. Even though I don't know nothing, and neither do they. Because what we proclaim is not of ourselves, it's not of our study. It's of, our, it's of, it's of God's grace and mercy to expound. Some people will do it differently than I do. Some people will emphasize it differently than I will. And that is God's purpose for them. 
But here Paul says, it's not of ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Christ. For God who said, one of my favorite, if not my favorite verse in the entire Bible. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And here is Paul's psalm. But we have this treasure, this treasure of this gospel, of this Jesus. We have this knowledge in order to show that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's not about what we've done right or the words that we've expressed or the things that we have accomplished or the service that we have given. It is about us. Because if you notice, the service that Paul planned and the service that God permitted were two completely different things. Paul planned church plants, church plant, church plant, missionary, missionary, missionary. And he was in prison, prison, prison. And the Spirit of God told him, he's like, I'm going to Spain. And God said, you're going to jail. And he wrote to the Romans, right? And he went to jail. And he stood before King Agrippa and he stood before Caesar. And he said, it ain't about you. You aren't Lord. He's Lord. He didn't rebuke him and dance all over his authority. He appreciated and respected it as coming from God. Romans 13. But he proclaimed the authority above all authorities. The Lord above all lords. The God of grace and the God of wonder. Whose deeds we will not be quiet about. You see the point of the Bible teaching us as the Bible believers to to live according to the gospel. I have wasted more breath on theological dialogue than I have, than I want to count. But that in and of itself is part of the plan of God. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Oh, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Paul, I think you were crushed. I think they took you out in Acts 14, I think, and they put you outside and they stoned you. And then your disciples took you out from under the rocks and then they put you back Together, and you went back in and started preaching again. And Paul didn't say, These people are stoning the prophets of God. Boo! Oh, these heretics. That would have gotten him true salvation and probably a crown. He just said, Oh, Paul, we thought you died. No, I ain't die. I wasn't crushed. Psh, what are you talking about? I'm perplexed. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why it's going on. Have you ever thought about that of the Apostle Paul? Have you ever thought about that's the angst of the man Jesus Christ in the hours before his crucifixion? The perplexity of the human emotion, what it's going, how it's conflicting with the solidarity of what we know is true, what we hope and hold on to, the tethers of this world and everything in it. And we're going, oh, what am I going to, what do I do? What do I do? How do I deal with this? I can't deal with this. Yeah. But I'm not driven to despair. We feel despairing. And sometimes we think we've driven up to despair, but we never get out of the car. (laughs) Paul's like, I'm perplexed, but it's okay. I know my Redeemer lives. I know the one who died for me. I know the God of heaven who revealed himself to me while I was going to kill his servants. 
Oh, I'm persecuted, Paul says. 2 Corinthians 4.9, I'm persecuted. Man, I'm, nobody likes me. Nobody liked Jesus either, even the ones who followed him when he said, you got to eat my body. They're like, ooh, creepy, and they left. And then all the people that depended on him for their livelihood, because Judas shared a little bit, they're like, y'all going to leave? And Peter's like, never, ever would I ever deny you. You have the words of eternal life. And he was truthful. But yet he told somebody three times the night of Jesus' arrest, he had no idea who they were talking about. He was not that Peter. I'm persecuted, but I'm not forsaken. I'm not alone. I'm lonely, but I'm not alone. The only person Paul had was offerings running from Ephesus and Philippi and Dr. Luke. And why did God do that? So that I'd have this letter to read to you. I'm struck down, but I am not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Since then, we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believed and so I spoke. We also believe. That's what was written. And so we also speak. Knowing that he, he who raised Jesus from the dead will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you, you who I'm writing to, into his presence. It is all for your sake. As grace abounds and extends to more and more people that may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. We are to be grateful and to thank Him for all things. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is just wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed daily. Oh, this is another one of my favorites. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So in that practical sense, as we read the Psalms, we don't look to see how we can apply them practically without seeing who they point to powerfully. Jesus Jesus. And over the next week or two, I want to talk about worship and thankfulness. Because that's where Paul, excuse me, that's where David goes, isn't it? Paul goes there all the time. James, John, the apostles, the saints of old. David does as well. He praises God. He praises God. Even though he's persecuted and all of these things even though we suffer we can praise God it's not something that works without a divine imposition what's that mean without God doing something in our hearts and minds it's not something that works I'm poor and I'm needy Jesus Christ was poor and he was needy and he laid his life down for the ransom of his people Beloved, let us live in that gospel. Let us learn that gospel more and more. And let us love each other in that gospel. Let's pray.
We thank you, Father, for your word, and Father, just for your compassion, for your patience with me and with the rest of us. And Lord, I pray for those who are not with us today, that you would help them find this message in this series so that we would be in one accord. But Lord, your will be done. I pray that we who are gathered today, Lord, would would see and sense the extra grace that has been given to us because of our presence here. Lord, I pray for us in our daily lives and everything that we have upon us and all the things that we have to do with work and school and home and family, everything. Lord, I pray for our homes. I pray for the marriages of our church. I pray for the singles in our church. I pray for our children. Lord, that we would just be honoring to you in the way according to Christ, not in the way according to the world. Lord, give us discernment to know the difference between what the world says is biblical and what you have taught us. That we may grow without fear, without fear of anything, to stand bold in calmness to do that which you've called us to. Lord, most of all, we thank you that you have given us the assurance that Christ's death is sufficient and that there is nothing we can do, obtain, nothing that's required of us in any way that you have not already fulfilled and nothing else that we are looking to experience except that day of reconciliation when we will be made like him forever. So until then, Lord, we live in this meat suit and in this crazy world in a way that just blows our minds So we thank you that we cannot fathom the alternative because it is so foreign to our senses. But Lord, the sense of your spirit within us has shown us the delight that comes in Christ. So help us to see that which is unseen as we wait for it patiently. In Jesus' name, amen.